Well, good morning again, everyone. We're um, continuing our sermon series in Two Kings. If you're here for the first time today, great to have you with us. We've been working our way through one and two kings for quite a while now, and we're up to chapter 13. Uh, I might pray that my voice might hold okay. My, my uh, voice wasn't great last Sunday, if you remember, and it basically disappeared through the week. It's on the mend, but uh, let me pray that God might help us listen and that he might help me speak. Uh, Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you that you are the God who speaks so clearly to us in Scripture, even though at times we have to work hard to understand. Uh, Father, we pray that you might cast our minds to your word this morning to put out uh, any other thoughts or distractions, and I pray that you might be so kind to help my voice uh, through so that we can hear your word well. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, uh, today we come to the end of an era. Uh, Since August last year, you might not remember this, but uh, it's been quite a while. Since August last year, we've been following this narrative of Elijah and Elisha. That's been the big chunk of one and two kings we've been uh, been doing, uh, the two great prophets of God. But as uh, Liz just read for us, Elisha, in 2 Kings 13, this chapter, he dies. And that spells the end of this era of Elijah and Elisha, God's great prophets. And sometimes the coming of the end of an era, that can be a good thing, uh, particularly if it's been a hard time. So one of my recent favorite uh, era ends is the end of toddlers in our house. We didn't kill them, don't worry. (laughs) Just, you know, the end of having little, little kids in the house, which for me has spelt the end of nappies, which has been lovely, the end of prams, and my personal favorite, the end of car seats. I hate car seats, uh, putting them in the car, putting them out of the car, putting them in the car again, and all the sweat that comes with them, and sometimes unhelpful words that come out of your mouth. Uh, so the end of an era, it can be a good thing. Sometimes a, a period of time ends, and that's great. Uh, sometimes it can spell disaster. And I won't name any names or parties or anything happening, particularly in the UK at the moment, uh, but the end of certain political leaders and their parties sometimes brings disaster. And we've seen this in the history of our world. The new leader comes along, a new party comes along, and they're hopeless. They bring with them political and economical instability. And what we have with the end of this era of Elijah and Elisha is the beginning of disaster. Uh, You see, chapter 13, it's the beginning of the end for that northern kingdom of Israel. It's the beginning of the end. When we get to chapter 17, the northern kingdom of Israel, remember they're split in two, the the, the southern kingdom of Judah and the northern kingdom of Israel. When we get to chapter 17, the northern kingdom will be no more. It will be devastated. And what else do you expect? You see, all that was good in the north, in Israel, as far as the leadership was concerned, came from Elijah and Elisha. Uh, With both of them gone, then there's nothing good left anymore. If you have a look up on the screen, it's a bit small, but hopefully you can see it near a screen close to you. But this is a graphic I've got up on my wall at home, and it's very helpful. And what it shows is the good, the bad, and the mediocre kings of Judah in the south and Israel in the north. And if you have a look at the image, uh, the white blocks and the the thumbs up, they're the kings that followed God. Uh, The black and the thumbs down, they're the kings who were evil before God. And the sideways thumb and the grey, they're like the, you know, so-so mediocre kings. And as you can see, with the kings of Judah on the left, there are a smattering of good kings. There are some good kings in Judah, still a bunch of bad ones, but there are some who are faithful to God. But if you look with the kingdom of Israel, the north on the right, all of them, thumbs down, all of them were evil in the Lord's sight. Not one of the kings 
were truly faithful to God. And so now that the good and godly prophet Elijah was gone, and now that Elisha was, was gone and dies in his chapter, what hope is there for Israel? There's no good in Israel. They're hopeless now. And so what we'll see with this chapter is the beginning of the end, the beginning of that end for the northern kingdom of Israel. So let's jump in. And the first person we meet in this chapter is Jehoahaz, son of Jehu. And if you remember chapter 10 from a few weeks ago, uh, a, a king, uh, the king of Jehu of Israel, he was made a promise by God. Again, you might remember this. God promised Jehu that four generations of his sons would sit on the throne in the northern kingdom of Israel. And so chapter 13 kicks off uh, as we follow that line of the kings of the northern kingdom again. It kicks off in a way that we're expecting. We're expecting a son of Jehu and we've got one, Jehoahaz. And the other thing we're expecting, because this is the northern kingdom kings again, we're expecting him to be pretty hopeless. We're expecting that thumbs down, like all the other kings of Israel. So look at verse 2 of chapter 13. Look at verse 2. It says this, He, Jehoahaz, did what was evil in the Lord's sight and followed the sins that Jeroboam, son of Nebat, had caused Israel to commit. He did not turn away from them, from those sins. And because of that, again, what are we expecting? We're expecting judgment because of such rebellion. So look at verse 3. Verse 3, the Lord's anger burned against Israel, and he surrendered them to the power of Hazael, king of Aram, and his son Ben-Hadad during their reigns. And again, this is all the sort of stuff we're expecting. We've been in one and two kings for a while now. We're expecting this. Uh, back in chapter 8, uh, Elisha, when he to- was told that Hazael was going to become king of Aram, what did Elisha do? Do you remember? He wept when he knew that Hazel was going to be king of Aram. Why? Because he knew God had showed him all the devastation and all the oppression he was going to bring on the northern kingdom of Israel and what he was going to do to the people. And that's what's happening here. Just like God said, devastation, oppression, they were handed over. This is all the stuff we're expecting. But what we're not expecting is what happens next. Look at verse 4. Verse 4. Then Jehoahaz sought the Lord's favor. And the Lord heard him, for he saw the oppression the king of Aram inflicted on Israel. Therefore, the Lord gave Israel a deliverer, and they escaped from the power of the Arameans. You see, what we don't expect is for a king of the north to seek the favor of the Lord. It's very unusual. Again, we've been in one or two kings for a while now. This doesn't happen. Throughout all of 1 and 2 kings, the kings of the south, they seek the Lord, yes, but, but rarely, if ever, the kings of the north. They don't seek the Lord. And so at this point, there's kind of this glimmer of positivity. You begin to wonder, finally, have Israel and her kings realized that the Lord is the king? He's the one who reigns. Have they realized how powerful he is, finally, that they should rightly worship him and him alone and put away all their moronic idolatry? Because that's what idolatry is. It's, it's idiotic. Have they, have they put that away once for all? You kind of have this moment of hope, and then you read the rest of verse 5. Look again at verse 5. After God rescued them, he, he got rid of, well, saved them from the king of Aram. After God rescued them, then the people of Israel dwelt in their tents as before, but they didn't turn away from the sins that the house of Jeroboam had caused Israel to commit. Jehoahaz walked in them, and the Asherah pole also remained standing in Samaria. 
And so whatever hope we had for Israel, it's gone. And it's really just sad. I hope you're saddened by this. I hope, I hope this saddens you as you read it because God is ever so gracious. He rescues them again. They've been so hopeless. God rescues them again. His favor is on them again. And yet, the people sin again. And it's very easy to read this and just kind of accuse Jehoahaz of being so fickle. You know, one second, there he is, seeking God's favor, repentant, it seems. And in the next second, he's back to his idolatrous ways. But I, I don't think this happens overnight. I don't think the picture is, uh, you know, there, there, there's a Jehoahaz who repents and, and seeks the Lord's favor on one day. And then day two, God says, all right, I'll get rid of the king of Aram. And then day three, everything's good. And so Jehoahaz goes back to the idol shrine. This doesn't happen overnight. See, the king over Israel, Jehoahaz was king over Israel for 17 years. It was a slide back to his idolatrous ways after God was gracious again. And so there's a warning for us here. I love this verse from 1 Corinthians 10. It's up on the screen. And this verse is talking more specifically about Israel in the wilderness under Moses for 40 years. But it rightly applies to all the Old Testament. But it says this, Paul tells us, he says, Now these things... All these things written in the Old Testament, they're written as examples for us. So that we, Christians, will not desire evil things as they did back then. So that we don't become idolaters as some of them were. And so we read here of Jehoahaz and think to ourselves, man, that guy was hopeless. Look how fickle he is. You know, he, he, he sought God's favor for salvation because he wanted something from God. He was in desperation. So in his desperation, then he seeks God. But then as soon as he gets what he wants, he rebels again. He forgets God. He, he commits his previous sins. You know, how hopeless is Jehoahaz? That's what we want to think. But instead of that, we need to see this as an example and think, wow, I better not be like Jehoahaz. See, we need to read this. And see it for the warning that it is. Paul goes on to say in 1 Corinthians 10 that these Old Testament examples are written not just for our education and for, hey, this is a cool story. No, they're written as warnings for us, for the Christian to heed. And so we need to read this and then we need to ask ourselves the hard questions. Like, can I be a bit like Jehoahaz? We need to ask the hard questions and think, do I only seek God in the hard times? When things are good, I forget about God. But when it's hard, that's when I pray more. That's when maybe I come to church more. Do we forget him in the good times? Do I realize that I can be so fickle in my worship of God? Are we aware that the sin that brought Jehoahaz back to idolatry is actually the same sin that's still at work today? Uh, J.C. Ryle writes this, it's up on the screen. He says, we are too apt to forget that temptation to sin will rarely present itself to us in true colors saying, I am your deadly enemy and I want to ruin you forever in hell. Oh no, sin comes to us like Judas with a kiss. The walking idly on his palace roof seemed harmless enough to David. Let us then watch and pray lest we fall into temptation. You see, I find reading about Israel and her kings, as I hope you do as well, and their continued rebellion in light of God's continued grace, so saddening, just so hopeless and so moronic a lot of the time, if I'm honest. But then I think of how we can so easily do the same. 
how sin is at work in us. See, there's a warning here for us. Do not be like Jehovah has. Let us hear the examples and the warnings. But as chapter 13 moves on, we then move to the next son of Jehu, to Jehoash. Don't get them mixed up. Jehoahaz and Jehoash. And Jehoash is the second son, the second of four sons of Jehu. And in verse 10 to 12, we get a very quick summary of all that he did. And we'll hear more about him next week in chapter 14. But the reason he's introduced to us here is because of this story with Elisha, which is a section that Liz read out for us just before. And again, as we read this, there's this, this glimmer of hope, again, for the northern kingdom of Israel. He's a new king, and it starts so well. So in verse 14, if you look at verse 14, Jehoash goes to see Elisha. He hears that God's prophet Elisha was ill, and he goes to see him, and he even weeps over him, which is extraordinary. You don't expect that from the northern kings. The northern kings, what have they been like so far? They hate Elijah. They hate Elisha. They go to see them to kill them, not to weep over them because they're sick. And then Elisha, he gives Jehoash some instructions. So verse 15, he tells him to get a bow and arrow, and he does. In verse 16, he tells him, grasp it, he does. Open the window, says Elijah, he does. Shoot, he shots. And then Elisha declares these victorious words at the end of verse 17 to Jehoash. Look at the the end of verse 17. He says this, it's all very glorious. Then Elisha said, the Lord's arrow of victory, yes, the arrow of victory over Aram. You are to strike down the Arameans and Arthak until you have put an end to them. And at this point, it all sounds so good and so positive. And it would have been such a comfort for Jehoash because, again, remember... The king of Aram and the Arameans, they were notorious killers. Uh, we, we just forget how horrendous these times were. If you go back to 2 Kings 8, Aram, what were they to do to Israel? In 2 Kings 8, Aram were to kill the young Israelite men with their swords. And they would come and they would dash Israel's little ones, think babies, think toddlers, dash them to pieces. And they were to rip open the pregnant women. To get rid of the Lion of Israel. That, that's how horrendous and hideous the king, of, uh, king Haziel and King Aram were towards the Israelites. That's the sort of killers they were. Which sadly, what was the normal stuff of walls, we, we need to be so much more thankful to God that we don't have to see that in our time. And pray that we might never experience it. Because that was the norm in war. And so Jehoash, at this point, he'd be thinking, Fantastic! Now, Aram will be defeated once for all. Finally, here's a word from God's prophet of freedom for Israel. Peace, perhaps even in our time. But then we get the rest of this little episode. Look at verse 18. Look from verse 18. Then Elisha said, take the arrows. So he took them. Then Elisha said to the king of Israel, strike the ground. So he struck the ground three times and stopped. The man of God was angry with him and said, You should have struck the ground five or six times. Then you would have struck down Aram until you had put an end to them. But now you will only strike down Aram three times. And there are all sorts of theories on what's going on here. Some theories are more funny than reasonable. So some people say, hey, Elisha's just about to die. So he just has a bit of fun with King Jehoash and just kind of stirs him up a little bit and wastes his time because he was never going to do it. Uh, And at first read, I think this. At first read, I read and I think... Well, I reckon Jehoash did pretty well. I don't know what you think. If Elisha said to me, strike the ground, I would have gone, bang. Elisha did it three times. That, that's pretty good, right? I would have done it only once. But whilst the details of the arrow and the amount of striking seem a bit confusing to us, 
I think the point is really clear. Sure, the, the, the details are strange to our ears. Or, you know, we don't know why the striking. We don't know why the big deal of how many times and what the ground represents or what the striking represents. But the point's simple, isn't it? See, Jehoash, his response was half-hearted. That's the point. He wasn't committed enough. He wasn't truly faithful. The, the text is really clear. It says it was three strikes. should have been five or six or more. He only did three. See, the point's quite simple. Elisha was angry, and God only allows Israel to strike Aram three times because Israel and her kings, they're half-hearted. They're uncommitted. They're unfaithful. And that's part of what we need to learn from this chapter. See, as we see this example of Israel and her kings over and over again in this book, we're to mourn their lack of trust in God. We're to think, if only they would stick with God. You know, if only they would truly seek him continually, not periodically like, like Jehoaz, who one moment is seeking the Lord and then when he gets what he wants, he turns his back. You know, if only they would be wholehearted, strike the ground six million times if it needs to be, instead of half-hearted like Jehoash. See, if only they would realize the power of the one true God, which I think is why we get that strange episode in verses 20 and 21. Uh, with Elisha's dead bones. You see, the God of Israel, he's so powerful, so powerful and so able to save that even touching the dead, dry bones of one of his former prophets revives a man miraculously. That's how powerful God is. Touches dead bones of some old prophet, boof, back to life. That's God. You see, if only Israel would realize who their God is, but they didn't. And it begs the question, do we realize who the God of the Bible is? Really, do we grasp him? Just think about it. Do we grasp how powerful and awesome our God is and therefore trust him always? One thing that struck me as we've been thinking about prayer in our gospel teams, and if you are not in a gospel team, you don't know what they are, please come speak to me. But we've been thinking about prayer in our gospel teams during the week. And it struck me just how small a picture of God I think we have. See, as you read what the psalmists say, and as you read what the New Testament writers say about the awesomeness of God and the praiseworthiness of God, eagerly I thirst, with all my body I thirst for you, says Psalm 63. I wonder if our picture of God needs to get so much bigger, much, much bigger. One of the guys in my gospel team in the week, as we looked at the picture in Revelation 5, remember Revelation 5? It's this great, glorious picture uh, where every creature is worshipping God, saying dominion and blessing and honour and glory and power to the one seated on the throne and to the Lamb. This great picture of praising God. Uh, This guy in my gospel team said, I just find that hard to fathom. I find that sort of full-on praise of God and full-of-life praise of God forever and ever just hard to grasp. And at one level, that's right. You see, in our sinful states, we just don't fathom the power and awesomeness of the God who is God. He's so much more powerful and awesome than we realize. But we need and we must have an ever-increasing picture of how great our God is, how great He is, how awesome He is, how worthy he is. You see, Israel in the north and her kings, they did not have a big enough picture of God. That, that's why they worship so-called other gods and idols. 
And that's why they found themselves in this state of hopelessness. And now Elisha's dead, and uh, all we get about his death is what we see in verse 20. He died and was buried. And we don't hear about Elisha at all anymore. He doesn't come up again in the Old Testament. But now that Elisha is dead and the era of Elijah and Elisha is over, it's really, it is hopeless for Israel. Like I've said, by the time we get to chapter 17, they're no more. The the northern kingdom of Israel gets completely uh, destroyed by the Assyrians. They get taken over. That kingdom doesn't exist anymore after that point. See, this this is a hopeless chapter. But we get this one glimmer of hope at the very end of chapter 13. So have a look at verses 22 to 24. And in these uh, verses, we meet King Hazael again, and we hear of his continued uh, oppression of Israel. And he eventually dies, as we read in verse 24. But the bit I want us to notice is verse 23. So you have a look at what it says in verse 23. And again, imagine it like this. King Hazael, the guy who rips open pregnant women, okay, horrendous oppression. He's oppressing Israel. In verse, 30, uh, verse 23, the Lord, again, was gracious to Israel, had compassion on them, and turned toward them because of his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God was not willing to destroy them. Even now, which was probably two or three hundred years after that time, even now he has not banished them from his presence. And that's a very interesting verse because who do the great promises of God belong to in the, in the time of the north and south kingdoms? Uh, do you remember? Who, who are the promises of God in 2 Samuel 7 that there'll be this forever king and that there'll be this forever kingdom that will never end? Who do those promises belong to? It belongs to Judah in the south, not, not to Israel in the north. But the promise of God here in verse 23 goes back to the time of Genesis. It goes back to the time of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob before 2 Samuel, where God had made a promise with all of his people, not just the southern kingdom. And so whilst, yes, the end of an era with Elijah and Elisha has come and it spells the beginning of the end for that northern kingdom, and yes, we get to chapter 17 and that northern kingdom is destroyed, but that doesn't mean that God's promises has failed. That doesn't mean that there's no hope whatsoever for the people and the generations of that northern kingdom. And to see how God keeps his promise, we need to go to the New Testament. And uh, we'll finish with this, but here's a bit of an interactive quiz for you, not a rhetorical question. This is one where I'm not saying a question and you just go, oh, he's going to answer it himself. No, I want you to answer it, one of those. And look, if you get it wrong, it doesn't matter. There's only about 100 people here. You're not going to be that embarrassed. Uh, but in the New Testament, who are the remnants of the northern kingdom of Israel? Where, where do you find the bloodline of the northern kingdom? Let's call it loud because I was in a band for too long and I can't hear properly. Samaria, the Samaritans, good. And, and what uh, does Jesus say in John chapter 4 when he meets a Samaritan woman? Uh, do you remember uh, chapter 4? He meets a Samaritan woman and a Samaritan woman comes up to Jesus and she asks questions about worship. And she asks him, which is the right place and mode of worship? I, I, is it in the north, the northern kingdom area like the Samaritans do? Or is it in the south, in Jerusalem, like the Jews do? Who's right? Is it the northern kingdom or is it the southern kingdom? And Jesus gives this incredible answer. It's up on the screen. Jesus tells this woman from Samaria, remnant of the northern kingdom of Israel, Jesus told her, Believe me, woman, an hour is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know because, again, the promise is with the south. 
We worship from the south. We worship what we do know because salvation is from the Jews. But Jesus goes on, he says, But an hour is coming and is now here when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. Yes, the Father wants such people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. And you see what Jesus is saying here? At that point, Jesus is actually saying an end of an era has come. No more will worship of God be confined to a place, the north or south of Israel. And no longer will the worship of God be confined to a people, the Jews in the south. No, the worship of God will be open to all people, north, south, east, west, doesn't matter. All people can worship God in spirit and truth if only they trust in Jesus. And you see... That is the era that we live in now. You see, the time of God's grace in Jesus, his son, that is the time we live in now. Do you realize that we actually live in the most blessed time of all of history? See, forget what you read in the news. Forget the state of the economy and what the share market and so on is doing. Forget what you hear of wars and rumors of war or nuclear war for that matter. Jesus tells us, don't be alarmed. Those things will come and they'll go. Don't be deceived by them. No, actually realize that we live in the most blessed of times because we live in the era of Jesus as king, of the time of worship in spirit and truth by faith in Christ. See, we live in the time where God has kept his promise to that south of the forever king. Jesus has come. We live in the time where God has kept his promise to the north that he wouldn't abandon them. And we see that with the Samaritan woman. And we live in the time where God has kept his promise to save all people through Jesus, his son, which includes you and me. You see, that is the era we live in. And praise God that this is the era of hope in Jesus, not of hopelessness. See, that's what we learn from this chapter. That's what we must realize. Let me pray. Well, Heavenly Father, we pray that you might help us to have that right big picture of you. Uh, the big picture of your power and your awesomeness that the northern kingdom just didn't have, and so many were unfaithful. But Father, we thank you that you are always faithful, that you keep your promises, and in Jesus, your Son, you have brought this great era of hope, not of hopelessness, where all who call on his name will be saved. And for this, we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.